Coming up on this episode, author Allie Theron joins us to talk about her brand new paranormal thriller, Liar City. Welcome to episode 415 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of queer romance fiction. I'm Jeff, and with me, as always, is my co-host and husband, Will. Hello, Rainbow Romance reader. We are ever so pleased that you could join us for another episode of the podcast. Now, before we get into our chat with Allie, Jeff, you got some news. You've got a brand new book that you can tell everyone about. Yes, I do. And plot twist, it isn't a romance, and it's not young adult. This is my first time out writing nonfiction. I've collaborated with my friend and day job colleague, Michele Lucchini, to write Content for Everyone, a practical guide for creative entrepreneurs to produce accessible and usable web content. Now, for anyone who is a creative, such as the authors, perhaps, that are in our audience, this book tells you what you need to know to create content on your website, in emails, and on social media so you can include everyone in the messages you're putting out there. The book comes out this week on Wednesday, March 1st, and you can find out more at contentforeveryone.info and in a special episode of the Big Gay Author Podcast that's out now and available wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're putting content on the web, I hope you'll pick up a copy and find out what you can do to make the internet a more accessible place for everyone. Not too surprisingly, I served as an advanced reader for Content for Everyone. It is positively jam-packed with information, and if you are a creative, it's definitely going to give you some food for thought. You can pick up your copy now, wherever you get your books, or if you'd like, use the link on our show notes page. All right, and now on to our conversation with Allie Theron. You'll discover pretty quickly in this interview that I loved every single minute of Liar City. This new paranormal urban fantasy thriller, which begins the Sugar and Vice trilogy, is simply outstanding, and I love so much talking to Allie about it. Fun fact, this was the very first book Allie ever wrote, but it is her fifth to be published. She's going to give us all the details on why that's the case. Plus, she's going to talk about how she came up with this story that in many ways actually mirrors things that are happening in society today. And stay tuned after the interview, and I'll tell you more about why I thought Liar City was so fantastic. Allie, welcome to the podcast. It's so exciting to have you here. Hi, thank you. I have to say, I was blown away by Liar City. I mean, it just it, it blew my mind early and just kept going through the entire book. Tell everyone what they're going to find in this amazing page turner. Thank you. That's an amazing setup. I guess a log line, I'd say you know, it's an anxious pacifist empath and a very stoic empath hunter, and they have to team up and stop a killer and solve the mystery of a senator who was murdered just days before her anti-empathy bill is up for a vote. My favorite description of it is X-Men, but make it gay. Because it's set in this alternate Seattle where they're struggling with this emergence of empaths and nobody knows exactly why it happened. And it sort of explores how society is reacting to these empaths. But at the heart of it, it's like a procedural detective mystery, kind of a little noir inspired. There's definitely the noir aspects, which I yeah. really enjoyed kind of like this flashback to like, you know, 1940s and 50s, <laughs> but set in the now in this alternate universe. It was so clever how you did that. How did you decide to bring the noir into it and then weave it in in the way that you did? I like that kind of old school, like Maltese Falcon kind of noir feel. I actually have studied film in, in college before law school. So I, I loved 
sort of the Hitchcock, that just classic mystery with suspense mixed in. And also that sort of like unpredictable, you don't know what's going to happen next. You know what I mean? Like it's not necessarily just a straight A to B mystery. There's all sorts of twists and turns. Mm -hmm. I was a fan of of Asimov growing up and he wrote I think Caves of Steel was one of the books I really like kind of imprinted on because I thought it was so cool how he brought this futuristic world with robots but then it's focused on like this detective and he doesn't like his he doesn't like robots but he's got a robot partner and it was an interesting I feel like it took mystery it took all the things I loved and then I put them together and so that's kind of I think what I wanted to do when I do when I started this book. I could totally see like the the empath hunter Evan as like almost looking like Harrison Ford's character <laughs> from like Blade Runner or a hard-boiled detective from like ni- some 1950s movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he's like surprisingly good looking because I kind of wanted I did that on purpose because I kind of wanted to play with that trope because I feel like it's always been sort of kind of a male power fantasy with these like very rugged like whatever and I was like okay well I'm gonna make him like young and really hot and but still that kind of vibe right like that kind of stoic grumpy like yeah that was that was that was fun to sort of like think about how could I change up that trope a little bit and yeah. then you saddled him with a nickname of the dead man, making him sound like he came out of the X-Files. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, he's got this really like unattractive nickname and he's like not what, what people expect him to be. I think maybe that's a little of Buffy, like how Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you had this beautiful like high school, I can't remember if she was a cheerleader, but then she starts hunting vampires. So it's kind of like that kind of thing where you've got this guy who you don't, isn't what you would think the character of the dead man would be. And, and he's bicultural like I am, but it's a sort of also, it's not a big part of the book, but it is like something that's referred to a couple of times, which is mm-hmm. kind of true to the, to the bicultural kid experience, at least in my experience. What was your inspiration for not just the story and what goes on there, but the, the specific characters of Reese, who is the empath, and then Evan, who's the empath hunter, because it's it's also fascinating, the intricacies of both the story and the characters themselves. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I think I talked a little bit about like the classic detective mysteries, the noir vibe, I think wanting to capture that. I actually, I think there's a little bit of Dragon Age, the video game series in here, which might sound weird, but they have this, you know, in Dragon Age, there's like these mages and there's these Templars and the mages have magical powers, but they also have the, may turn dangerous, and the Templars are the ones who keep them in line. And there's a lot of questions in the game, like, is that moral? Is that okay? Because you have the two competing things. You have like people who really, truly could be really dangerous. And then you have the people who are possibly like prone to abuse, right? Because you're you're dealing with people who haven't done anything yet. They just have the potential to do it. So I thought that was interesting. And I, I have no answers. I just have questions. I brought that, you know, I brought that. <laughs> I, I love that about the game that it introduces these moral questions and it makes you think and there's no easy answers. And so I think that was one of the inspirations for sort of having like this empath hunter who's you know, like working for the government. And then you have the empaths and there's as a lawyer and a, I'm interested in the law stuff. So I think I, I pulled some of that in, which was fun. Got to brush up on my like Fifth Amendment and stuff. Like how would this really like, happen if the if this was the case like self-incriminate 
right? Like in a police procedural with the, the empathy and the Fifth Amendment. So anyway, that's like a long way of saying that the story came from there. The characters, you know, it's a little harder to know where they came from. I think Reese, I wanted to do like, I feel like in the past, we've usually seen like Counselor Troy on Star Trek. Like they're very- That's where my mind immediately goes. Right, right. Because she's she's wonderful, you know, beautiful and and talented actress. She's such such a great character on that show. And she's very like understanding and empathetic. And I wanted to take a slightly different tack. So Reese is like a pain in the butt, right? He is a backseat driver. He is kind of a ball buster. Like he's very sarcastic. He can't hold his tongue. He's got his very, very prickly outside. He's very, 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 very soft inside. But I wanted to sort of take a different spin on empaths that I hadn't seen before. So the pacifism and the sarcasm and doing that with with Reese. And then Grayson, I think it was in some, I think there was his character evolved more like as I was working on the story. Like Reese was kind of Reese from the gate. And then Grayson kind of evolved as I sort of figured out like how they were going to play off each other. I like to, to come up with characters in pairs. So I don't come up with like just the main character. It's usually like a pair of characters and how are they going to play off each other? And I start from that. So there was some of that. And there was a lot of fandom probably inspired because there's a lot of shipping in fandom and the fans get really passionate. And I found that like TV producers will be like happy to encourage this, but they won't make the characters actually queer. And so I was a little grumpy and I was like, well, I'll make my own OTP and they will get together though, because I'm in charge. (laughs) Like, So there's a little bit of that of wanting you know, and that's why the first book isn't a romance because I wanted to draw it out. I wanted something where you could really just like sink into the world and get these really high stakes and really get the characters, like give them all this backstory and make it all a, just a three book arc for their romance, but do it, have them be queer. It is the slowest of slow burn. So I'm like, as I get to like 65, 70%, I'm like, will they kiss? <laughs> Yeah, and I'm. Where's it gonna go? Urban fantasy. There's no kissing in the first book, but I know it's it's the publisher has also put it under romance, and it's a Harlequin book. So, which kind of that that how it ended up with Harlequin is is was unexpected. I didn't expect that path, but very happy how how that worked out. And Karina books, I think, operate under a slightly different paradigm occasionally because there are the urban fantasies and the more paranormal things that that lurk in there and have been released. So it's not quite the Karina adores, which is more category and must be a romance like a Harlequin. But I kept hoping, ooh, maybe, because there's this, there's such a snap, crackle, pop between these two, (laughs) especially once they're just a little bit comfortable with each other. Not a whole lot comfortable, but a little bit. There's a lot more of that in book two. Book two is when the romance, and it's it's slow burn in book two, but I mean, there's a lot of it. And it's, we're going to very much go on that journey with them. I'm not going to like jump over it. Like we're going to go on the journey with them and see them kind of switch up that relationship a little bit. We're going to get Grayson's point of view too. So. Oh, fun. Yeah. I know I've heard from a couple of people who are like, what's he thinking? Like, well, you'll find out <laughs> like book two, come back for book two. Typically when we see books that arc this way, it's usually the POV kind of stays how it is from book one, you're changing it up a little in book two, kind of what led to that? Or was it just time to hear from Grayson finally? 
it was just time, I think, to put Grayson. I mean, we'll still get some of Jamie's point of view and we'll probably still have in typical like suspense fashion. We'll get like little interspersed from other points of view because there's like subplots. And if I can, Hitchcock has a wonderful quote about the difference between like suspense and just like thriller. Like I can't remember if it's thriller that he says, but like the difference between a bomb exploding and then putting a bomb under someone's chair and giving the audience 15 minutes of just stress and wondering when it's going to go off and how that suspense. And so that's why I like to do the extra points of view. I like for the reader to know more than the characters, because I feel like that creates a little bit of suspense there because they know what these characters are walking into and the characters don't, or they're like putting the mystery together and watching the characters do it. This book was the first book you wrote. Yes. But now it's your fifth to get yes. published. Yes. Talk to me a little bit about that journey to publication with it. Yeah. So this book started life as the very first short story I ever wrote, actually. So I was working a night shift job as a news analyst and would finish up and I would have a little bit of time sometimes at the end and I would started writing this short story and it's a mess. I still have it. it it's an absolute mess. No one would understand what's going on or, <laughs> you know, anything like that. But it was the first thing I had finished that was like original fiction with my own characters. And I, I had this short story and then I kind of looked at it. And I was like, I really like these characters, Reese and Grayson, maybe I can do a little bit more with the short story. And so I think this was like 2016. And I had no idea how to write a book, had never written a book, I wasn't even very good at English in college. But I have, but I, I think I mentioned I have a film degree. So I understood, like I studied plot. And so I kind of use that as my jumping off point to sort of take this short story and start exploring like, how do I turn this into a book? What does a book look like? What's a plot arc? What if I add some more points of view? What if I do this? And it just grew from that like little book, little story into like a 95,000 word book. And then I was like, okay, well, I wrote a book. Oh my God, I wrote a book. I finished it. I edited it. And then I was like, well, what do I do now? <laughs> so that's when I, I, there's no, I don't know anyone else who's an author in like my my real life if you my offline life and don't no connections or anything there so it was a lot of like well, what what do I do so researching oh okay you send it to agents if you want to get a publishing deal or you can self-publish and I was like I guess I'll, I'll go ahead and query it and so I did I started querying it in 2017 and then as I was querying it I was like well let me see if I can write another book and I wrote Spellbound which was a very different process because I had just, I like used Liar City to figure out how to write a book. And then Spellbound, I just went in and I like wrote a book and I was like, oh my God, I wrote a book. And I sold that one so fast. Like, I don't think it was a whole year from the day I started it to the day I was holding the, you know, I had the offer from Karina. And that was just, just luck. So much of publishing is luck. I happened to see like a Twitter contest for Karina Pitch. And I was like, oh, I, I have this almost done book and they're taking partials. I, I'm going to, I'm going to pitch it. And then Mackenzie, my editor was one of the ones who liked the pitch. And so I, I got the book to her and she liked it enough that she took it to the directors or the editorial team. And yeah, they wanted three. So, <laughs> so then I had this, the, the three book series that I was working on there and I had uh, Liar City just kind of sitting there on my hard drive. And I had talked to my agent about like, Hey, well, why don't we take this out on sub? And we sort of figured like it wasn't 
a Harlequin book, right? I was writing category romances or not category, but like genre romances. The Magic in Manhattan books are very much like your more traditional historical romances, but with magic. But, you know, they're, they're more traditional romances, whereas Liar City is a, a little bit bananas, right? It's not, <laughs> I mean, I, I, it is. It is like, it's the book I wrote with absolutely no marketing plan, no knowledge of the market, just pure tell storytelling right so it I didn't really know who if anyone was ever gonna want it right so we went out on sub with it it was the pandemic you know I had it out I was writing I think Wonderstruck at that point I wrote and started Wesley and Sebastian spinoff Proper Scoundrels and as this book was on sub and then at one point Harlequin came to us and was like do you have anything else and my agent was like, well, she does have another book, but it's not a romance. And we should, they were like, let's see it. And they sent it over and they offered on it for the Adores line. And I was, it was just, it was just an amazing day. Like that this publisher and I was going to get to work with my same editor, Mackenzie, who I, I just love and is so talented and was the perfect editor for this book. So yeah, I sold it early 2022. And now it's almost, I mean, it was like a sold that had to start. I had to stop the book I was writing and edit this one so that I could get it out. It was unexpected. I did not expect it to end up with Harlequin because it is a bananas, like urban fantasy with a, the romance is so slow burn. I thought they'd be like, no, nah, this is too slow burn, but they're, they're letting me do it as a three book arc. And I'm so, I'm so happy that, you know, that I'm just getting to do this book just feeling, yeah, really lucky. You know, I'm really grateful for the readers out there who supported Magic in Manhattan enough to the point that, that Harlequin's willing to, to take a chance on this. I just got like a starred review on it. And I was, that's just like amazing to me because this book has just been on my hard drive. And I, I just because I thought no one was ever, ever going to want it. And then to see it getting a star review and, and getting good trade reviews and people saying like, oh my God, this is really good. It's the most like amazing I just never expected it. So it's, it's nice. Long journey. You mentioned this was the first book. This is even the first short story. Yeah. You had your film degree. Were you thinking to be a storyteller in there? Kind of and what made you decide I'm going to write a short story now? I don't know. I think sometimes you just want to tell stories. Like I said, I was working as a news analyst. I, for a very variety of life reasons, I got sort of funneled into law school. It wasn't ever my plan to go. I wasn't planning to make films though either. I don't know. I don't know that I really had a plan. This is the fun of being neurodivergent, right? Like I didn't really have a plan. I was just good at standardized tests. So I rode that train for a while. And I, I think at some point, like you just realize like you just really want more creativity in your life. You really want more art in your life. You really want to make it yourself. And it just kind of comes bubbling up. And it was learning how to harness like that desire and actually like finish something and make it readable for someone else. I think having a kid actually helped a lot, which I know seems like the opposite because then you have less time and like less sleep. And how could that be the thing that helps? But it made me a more like badass version of myself, if that makes sense. Cause it mm -hmm. required me to be like more on and more sleep deprived and still function and be there for this tiny vulnerable person that I love more than anything in the world. So it's like, you have to step up. And I think having to do that kind of also helped me finally write something. 
I was like, I could see him and how messy it was for him to learn and how proud I was of him for the messy process. And like, was, I was like, I can, I can do that. I should, I should be more grateful or not grateful, but like more gracious when it comes to myself and let myself be messy and learn and creative and just, you can do it. <laughs> it's a lot of a, yeah. I don't know. I like I said, I don't journey. have anyone around me who's really like into it either. So if you don't see it modeled, you kind of don't know it's, it's an option for mm-hmm. you. Yeah. I love that whole idea of just embracing the messiness and just going for it. Yeah. I realized like I was watching him eat applesauce the first time and he was just getting it everywhere. And I'm like sitting there cheering for him. I'm like, you are amazing. You are so smart. You are so, look at you go. And then I like later realized like, oh, I have never ever treated my own learning attempts with that much grace and enthusiasm and like, just be messy and do your best. And, you know, it's going to be messy. For this book that took so many years, how did it really change over time? I mean, have recent Evan changed a lot or do you still find their core back in the short story? Back in the short story, they haven't changed that much, actually. The story always had Reese like consulting for the police. There was always a murder. There were always gloves. There were always, the empaths were always, you know, in Magic in Manhattan, the magic's hidden. The empaths in this one were always like out and having problems with society. So like the core parts of the story were there from the beginning. And Grayson kind of changed from like, at first he was a new partner and then he became the villain and then he became whatever he is in Liar City, which is a little complicated, (laughs) whether he's a villain or an ally. So yeah, Reese got a sister who was a detective along the way. Uh, That's been fun to have her also in the story. But the core of it's really, the same thing that, that I wrote years ago. Just Jamie's that. totally badass. Yeah. Isn't I it? love her. And I, and I love Liam too, because Liam's just along for the ride to like do whatever <laughs> needs to happen. Boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> and my editor helped me get like their relationship right, which she had some great feedback from the original draft. But yeah, he is, he's a great boyfriend and he really puts up with a lot of crap from Reese. But yeah, I'm in an interracial family. So it was nice to be able to be like, this is my world. And in my world, there's plenty of diversity. And because that's, that's the only way I'm going to feel seen, right? Like I can't, because I, that's just how my life has always been. And so Reese has this biracial sister and it was just kind of like, hey, my biracial husband's the most badass person I've ever met. So she's the most badass person in this book, pretty much. She does kind of outstrip almost everybody. I mean, yeah. I think her and Evan are kind of equally paired <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yes. But, you know, she's, yeah. she's not putting up with anything. That's for sure. No, no. She's, she's very alpha. Yeah. She's smart and tough and, but soft too in her mm-hmm. romance. And she's a fun one to write. And she and Grayson are fun together. Yes, they are. Because they're, a... they're sort of used to seeing someone like themselves. So there's a, there's an interplay there where they're like, huh, they recognize, I think something in each other. I like how you pull all this stuff together. There's some bisexuality, there's multiculturalism, hints at neurodiversity across the whole spectrum, giving readers this view of the world and people that they may not interact with. Has that always been kind of in your writing and something you just want to put out there as a creative? It's, it's both something I think about a lot and something I don't think about, which, by which I mean, like, there's never any question that there's going to be diversity in the book. And I specifically, when I'm planning think about it a lot in terms of like, like when I'm just doing magic in Manhattan, it's like, 
lives in Manhattan in the 1920s. It's going to be Italian immigrants, it's going to be Jewish immigrants, it's going to be immigrants. What is the reality of this city? And so Seattle, of course, Liam's half Korean. I wanted to reflect how Seattle is a really diverse city and, and Jamie's half black, half white, trying to capture that in the book, trying to, to make other people feel seen when who come from really diverse families or who just have diverse friends groups. I mean, I think a lot of people see that and they see themselves in that because their life is also diverse. And they're like, yeah, this is what my world looks like too. Another way I think you really reflect the world. And it's interesting how you've done this, given the time frame that this book's been written across is how government treats marginalized groups. I mean, I think when you started in 2016, the world is vastly different than it is now Yeah, with how we treat immigrants in this country, Mm -hmm. how there's certainly a, a wide number of states who are seeming to try to outlaw various aspects of queerness. And here you have trying to outlaw the empaths. How did all that become part of the story? And is it more a reflection mm-hmm. of the times or was that kind of always there even before the world became like it is now? It was always a, a part of the story. And yeah, it's a little disturbing actually that it became so much more relevant in the years between finishing this book and, and now that it's being published. But it's something. I think like I'm from an immigrant family, neurodivergent, queer. It's it's not obvious though to most people who meet me. I don't think most people assume any of, of those things from me when they meet me. And so I have kind of had this perspective almost like a daywalker in that I see what people say when they think there aren't any immigrants and see that side of people think they're safe with with other people like them and I'm, they don't realize I'm not. So I think that it's a little bit dystopian in Liar City, but I think we need dystopian fiction told by people who are really used to being misfits, right? Who are used to being on the fringes and kind of have that perspective. I think because I'm intersectional, I belong to various groups. And so I think there's, it's not a one-to-one, like I didn't sit down and go, the empaths represent this group of people. But there's, I think, the different groups of people in how the society is reacting to the empaths. And the other thing I really wanted to do is is to explore, like, they're profiting off fear. They're stoking that fear. They're stoking that xenophobia. They're doing it to stay in power. They're doing it to make money, right? Like, there's different levels. There's people who are true believers in the stuff. And then there's people who are not necessarily believers, but they can make money off of them. And I think that's something I wanted to explore, too. Like, there's a lot kinds of villains i guess yeah every single thing that happened there it's like you could tie it back to something happening now which is sad but fascinating at the same time <laughs> yeah it's i think i think library journal said it feels relevant to modern political times and it's definitely not like a political book in the sense of partisanship like i also wasn't trying to to make it like a partisan book Things are complicated. I think it, it hopefully is something that makes people think a little, I, I don't want it to be super simplistic, like just red versus blue, our team versus the other team, because I don't think humans are in a dichotomy, right? We're all complicated creatures with all sorts of different, like learning from each other. And yeah, I just think I wanted it to be complicated levels of, of villainy as a, something I think in all my books that I kind of explore, like, yeah, something in Man- Magic in Manhattan too, sort of like the villains behind the villains. <laughs> I'm very curious about the aspect of like 
plotting versus going by the seat of your pants? Because you mentioned with the short story, you really didn't know what you were doing. You were just putting things on paper. At some point, did this become a book that was plotted? Or was it always just kind of like, I'm going to put all this out here and me and the editor will sort it out later? The short story was very much like just letting it kind of happen. And that was just me needing to finish something. I think that is it Neil Gaiman who said like, learn to finish your shit. <laughs> it's like his yep. best writing advice. So <laughs> that was, that was what that was. And then though, there was a lot of planning. Like I'm, I, I do a lot of planning. I also say no, no plan survives battle. No outline survives the writing process for sure. So a lot of it gets changed and happens in edits, but I used to sit there at my day job and I'd just keep a pad of paper next to me. And when my mind would wander, I would go to the pad of paper and I would think about whatever question I had, like what thematically makes sense for the ending or what kind of clues should I be laying at this point? And I just kind of worked at those things as I sort of built the story around this short story that I had initially written. So there was a lot of it's a, most of my books now I write chronologically, but there's still a lot of going back in and editing because maybe there's people who can write mysteries right from the gate and get it right. But it, that's not me. <laughs> I have to, I have to do a lot of it in editing. Yeah. Cause there's so much you want to make sure you seated right. So it doesn't turn mm-hmm. out to be like, Hey, what, what happened? You kind of yeah. want it to all make sense when you get there. Yeah. It, yeah, exactly. So you do have to kind of, I go back and, and try to make sure it's working the way it should. And I, I do, I, I like the archaeologist. Like there's always people say like pantser or plotter, but I like the archaeologist metaphor where like you're uncovering the story oh, like as that. you go. Cause or like even or like an explorer with a map and you're trying to find your way through. So there's like a mix of it, right? Like, you know, the story, but you're not, you're also exploring where the story wants to go, but not like, I don't feel like I'm just making it up on the fly either. It's like figuring out what it's like a puzzle. There's, I guess it's all like puzzles. You're working in this case across the three book arc. How much have you tried to think about this is book two and this is book three as you were finalizing book one? Yeah. So when Harlequin and I, when we talked about the plan for the series, I submitted like a, a couple like synopses, really short, like just a few paragraphs for books two and three. And it, I have kind of had the major points I like at least the relationship like how it's and gonna go down in my head like from the get-go so when I was editing book one it's like I I know the the major thing that's gonna happen in book two and the major thing that's gonna happen in book three and I I use that as like I said there's a easter egg actually in Liar City about book two so that's one I know one of the things and I always knew one of the things that was gonna happen in book two and I wanted to lay a little clue there that maybe Maybe someone will find it. It's pretty subtle. Yeah. After you said that, before I pushed the record button, I'm like, I'm just, my <laughs> mind's just grinding away. Like, what could that have been? <laughs> it's, it's pretty subtle. I can tell you what chapter it's in. No, I'll let myself be surprised when I get to okay. read book two months from now. <laughs> well, and then I can be like, I can point to it and be like, this was the plan all along. <laughs> <laughs> it was my promise to myself that I would get to write book two. So yeah, a, a planning of the series, like I, I do know and have, I guess, like always kind of had a big story. It's just mm-hmm. a three book story for this one. For people who are diving into Liar City as, as this is, is going out the week that it comes out, 
what can you tease us maybe about the future of sugar and vice in the next two books without uh, giving too much away about anything? That's a, that's a fine line to walk. <laughs> it, it is. We will learn more about Grayson and his past and there will be romance and I will deliver the romance that is teased in book one. So that is coming. So yeah, those are, are the main thing. I think there will be more murder mystery. I like sort of having that procedural. I think those are fun to read, but there's an overarching plot as well. And I, I don't want to, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. So I don't, I don't want to give too many like spoilers, but basically yeah, especially people are just starting. More, yeah. You can expect a lot more banter probably too. And oh, those, two, those two prickling at each other. Your banter game is strong. <laughs> oh, that's Reese, really sweet. Reese and Grayson and Grayson and Jamie. I mean, <laughs> Oh, that's, I appreciate that. Thanks. It, it's really fun to write. I think dialogue is my, my favorite thing to write. We mentioned a little bit your other series. You've got the ongoing Magic in Manhattan and its spinoff. For listeners who haven't maybe picked those up yet, give us a little flavor of what's going on there because it's very different than Liar City. It is. It is. So those are, I mean, I, they have the banter. So if you're if you're interested in banter, if banter is like your jam, I think all my books probably qualify for that, for that. But Magic in Manhattan is 1920s, starts in New York, kind of goes a couple other places in the world as the series goes on, but starts in, in New York, 1925. There's magic, there's like supernatural relics that are causing problems. And it's, it's cozier, I guess, maybe is a way I hear from, from people. It's, it's really, really sweet and meaningful. They, they tell me like, this is their comfort read. These are sort of the books they go to. I've heard from people that got them for through a dark time, which is an amazing thing to feel like you could help someone there. So yeah, they're, they're a little cozier, a little slower paced. I mean, still like not, I wouldn't say slow paced. If you're looking for slow paced, it's probably not going to be what you're looking for, but it's a little slower, comfort read, more type stuff. What's it like balancing more than one ongoing series now that you've got them between the the original, the spinoff, now Sugar and Vice? Yeah, if I'm being super honest, it has required some deadline extensions, (laughs) especially also balancing like a job and, and everything else. But yeah, it's, it's getting easier. I think every time you start something new in writing or you, you take on a new aspect of being an author, there's that learning curve. And uh, this was a big one. I, I trying to get my head between the 1920s and Wesley and Sebastian, who are a lot of fun also there. I love writing them, but they're completely different than Reese and Grayson. And so I was like halfway through writing Once a Rogue. And then I had to switch and edit Liar City because that was going to come out first. And then I went back to Once a Rogue. And now I'm like back in like that's in copy edits. I'm back in the Liar City world. So it's they're very different worlds and it's a little, a little bit bouncing between them. But you know, it's getting there. <laughs> <laughs> what draws you to the kind of urban fantasy paranormal realms to write in? Because as we mentioned, magic in Manhattan, Liar City, very different, but they do have that overlap of the paranormal, the magic and that kind of thing. Yeah, I like mysteries and puzzles. And I like, I feel like urban fantasy 
kind of, you can do a mystery, but you can do it with a twist, right? You can add world building and magic and reality can be, can be a lot. So I kind of like having the escape that paranormal and urban fantasy and fantasy and science fiction, there's all kinds of speculative fiction brings. Like I, I like that imagination. I love seeing what other people come up with. So it's fun. It's a fun genre to play. And there's a lot of room to build, build out worlds and, but you can still have, it's, it's more about the setting to me, I guess. Like I think of things like historicals, a setting, even though it's, it's like a subgenre, it's not a plot, right? It's a setting. And then you have to still have a plot in your historical setting and urban fantasy is really still a setting. Same as science fiction is really like still a setting and you still need a plot that you bring to those settings. So I like to bring like a mystery plot or like a twisty saving the world plot to those kinds of settings and then let it all play off each other. (laughs) (laughs) So many fun threads to play with when you just keep mashing (laughs) all that in together. Yeah. Yeah. Now we love to get book recommendations. What have you been reading that you think our listeners should check out? So mysteries probably not a surprise and bonus points if they're paranormal mysteries a lot of stuff i recently read the decagon house murders which is really cool it's a japanese murder mystery that was written in the 80s a lot of fun if you like your classic locked room mystery i recently read the tarot sequence which mind the content warnings if you're gonna pick that one up but it's it's amazingly well written and imaginative you know i read charlie ahara because i love all her stuff jim burke is i love following her stuff as well Jordan Hawk, Haley Turner, Venor Lawless just put out a historical paranormal that's set in World War One that I liked a lot. We talked about sports romances. Always my friend Rachel Reed, love her stuff. And Katie mm-hmm. Casey with her baseball romances are just amazing. And then I'm, I'm always reading historicals too. So there's like Cat Sebastian and I'm really excited for Felicia Grossman's new historical that's coming up. Lots. <laughs> I write in a lot of genres, so I, I read across a lot of genres, I guess. I love how it's like paranormal, historical, contemporary <laughs> sports. There's a, yeah. it's a wonderful like mishmash of things. I like voice. Give us, you know give us I mean? some paranormal hockey sometime. <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, I wish I knew anything about hockey other than I, I enjoy books. <laughs> but uh, yeah, hopefully someone will give you paranormal hockey books. Because mine would would probably not be. I'd need to do a lot of hockey research. I'll just put it out into the universe that you and Rachel Reed team up. Oh, there you. (laughs) Yeah, we you know we share an editor at Karina, and I I do need to like talk about my editor because she did so much for Liar City. This book that I used to jokingly call my problem child because I had never found the right home for it. Mackenzie, that my editor is a big comic book fan. I did a Zoom call with her before she edited it. And I kind of told her like the backstory. And I said, I would love your help on the world building. I would just be think. And her edit letter, her first edit letter was just like, I could finally see like the path to making the book, what I wanted to make it. It was amazing. And like the chapter headers were her idea. And those were so fun to write. Like I'm, I'm getting people like will ping me and be like, I would play Dragons Without Dungeons or dun- yeah, Dragons Without Dungeons or like I would read Captain Feelings. Like she she encouraged me to like do the pop culture ones. And I think that really added a lot to the book. And yeah, very, very great editor. I love that you're shouting McKinsey out because I don't feel like editors get enough props. 
They don't. In the public they, view. I mean, the authors themselves may like, my editor is great, but then don't call it out like this because an editor can take something that's good and then just really elevate it to the next mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's what McKenzie did for you. Yeah, she's really good at helping you see, like she's got a real talent for helping you see how the story can be better and like empowering you to fix it. And then she's also just got good insights on like when something's not working or when there should be more of something. And editors don't get enough credit. They they really don't. I can't, I would not be, I don't think able to do their job to be able to, to walk that line between like, just like I said, empowering the author to write their own book but with the input, it's, it's just, it's such a balance. And I think a good editor pulls that off and it's, it's a magic skill of its own that not mm-hmm. every, it's, it's not an easy one. Yeah. And when you've got the one that clicks for you, you just never mm-hmm. want to let them go. So I'm very glad you got to have <laughs> McKenzie working with you on magic in Manhattan and then getting to come over to this too. That that's awesome. We know you're writing a lot of things right now. Yeah. What's coming out next <laughs> after Liar City? Like, what do we see actually in our hands next? Yes. Once a Rogue, which is the second book in the Magic in Manhattan spinoff, which is Roaring Twenties Magic. So Magic in Manhattan followed Arthur and Rory, you know, through three books. And then Arthur's ex-boyfriend, Lord Fine, was unexpectedly very popular. My editor was actually the first one to be like, I think he could be the hero of his own book. And it follows him and one of the villains from book two. Then they got their spinoff. And so now they're actually getting a second book. And I don't know if we're done with them actually after two books. We'll have to see because they have a lot of a great dynamic that's really fun to write. Like they, they play off each other a lot. It's very grumpy sunshine. It's very jaded and soft they go do you know you have your lord thirsty and danger marshmallow right and they they they're fun to to have play off each other so that one's coming in august very excited and then 2024 will be sugar and vice two and i think 2025 will be sugar and vice three and then we'll see what happens with wesley and sebastian and and like like every writer i have back burner stuff always in my head so we'll see but yeah. right now I'm very focused on just like, let's just, let's just get through right, right. What's on my plate now. There you go. <laughs> deadlines. <laughs> yes. Deadlines. Deadlines. Yes. And what's the best way for people to keep up with you online to know everything that's going on around the Liar City release and then everything going after that? So I have my email list. It's not, not so much a newsletter as it is just like a sporadic email list. I call it my book leggers since I write 1920s fiction, but uh, it's just book news. I only send an email when I have a release or a pre-order or like some other big, like, like I'll send an email that I'm on this podcast. So it's, it's no spam. If you want to sign up for that, people can sign up for that. I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Mastodon. I'm probably most active on Instagram these days, but you know, if you want to see my cat, that's <laughs> my Instagram feed is pretty much just stick figures and goofy promo and my cat. So I'm a, I'm a simple, simple person. And we will link up to all that stuff in the show notes, <laughs> along with all the books that we talked about and those great authors that you mentioned. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited that the rest of the world is going to get to get in on what I read a couple months back with Liar City and wish you the most success with it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's really cool. This episode's transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. 
If you'd like to read the conversation for yourself, simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at BigGateFictionPodcast.com. The show notes page has links to absolutely everything that we've talked about in this episode. And a quick reminder, too, if you'd like even more book recommendations, make sure to check out our weekly newsletter. You can sign up for it at BigGayFictionPodcast.com slash report. And thanks so much to Allie for coming to talk about Liar City. I so much enjoyed that conversation and how the story went from a short story to a three-book series. <sighs> so let me tell you a little bit more about Liar City and what I thought of it. Now, this is my first Allie Theron book. I know I'm late to the party because I haven't read the Magic in Manhattan series, but boy, am I glad I'm here now because Liar City was seriously an epic and incredible story. The Seattle that Allie has created is just a little bit adjacent to our own because it's the world with empaths. And these empaths have been cast as evil, as mind rapers, and you know people to be feared. As we talked about in the interview, there's this legislation that would help practically to outlaw them. It's a dangerous time to be an empath. And even more so now that there's a string of murders, including the author of that anti-empath bill. Now, Reese, who is the empath and sometimes Seattle PD consultant, his SPD detective sister, Jamie, and that mysterious agent known as the Dead Man, a.k.a. Evan Grayson, they all end up working together, but sort of not really wanting to work together to figure out what's happening, even as more bodies pile up. This twisty, turny investigation was oh so good. This was a page turner from beginning to end, and I had a very hard time putting it down in the moments where I really had to go do something else. I may have been a little late to work a couple of times in the morning when I was reading and a little late to go to sleep at night. And it's all Allie Theron's fault because this was so wrapped up in so many different twists and turns. And you know what? That's really all I'm going to say about the investigation side of the story because I don't want to give up spoilers. You deserve to go through all the twists and turns that I did. Now, I will say how much I love Evan and Reese. They are very different people. You've got Reese, whose empathy sometimes, and maybe more often than not, gets the better of him. He'll run into dangerous situations, compelled to help others, even while putting himself at risk. He talks way too much, saying things that he really should not. And the violence, or even the thought of it, can make him physically ill, which makes it all the more difficult if he's trying to run in and help somebody else. And then there's Evan, who really seems impervious to basically everything. He earns his dead man nickname. He's very methodical, seems to anticipate everything, almost a step or three ahead of what's actually going on. He's such an enigma that only begins to unfold a little bit by the end of this book. He will tell you not to trust him, even though he seems like exactly the person you want to trust and put faith into. You put these two together and you've got a team that you would not expect to work as well as it does. And boy, they don't expect to work well together either. And that's what makes it so charming in a way. While they would deny being a good team, I couldn't help but root for them because of the way that their teamwork actually played out. They remind me a lot of Gregory Ashes, Hazard, and Somerset in terms of how opposite they are and yet so good for each other and the way they can work together. Recent Evans, slow and occasionally fraught, warming up to each other was so perfectly written by Allie. What starts as fear on Reese's part grows to an uneasy working relationship that is sometimes two steps forward, one step back, or maybe more accurately, one step forward, 
two or three steps back. All depends on how you want to read it. <laughs> and it ends up, at least as a mutual respect, with inklings of something more on the horizon for these guys. As Ali mentioned, this is a slow burn romance that plays out over three books. Reese's badass sister Jamie was incredible too. There is far more to her than meets the eye. And as I mentioned, I look forward to seeing much more of her and her boyfriend Liam, who happens to work for PR for the Seattle PD, in these future books. I am so eager for that next book in the Sugar and Vice series, and I highly recommend that you pick up and check out Liar City by Ali Theron for yourself. All right, I think that'll do it for now. Coming up next on Monday, March 13th, we're going to hear from author Ruby Rowe about her debut sapphic fantasy romance, A Game of Hearts and Heists. Here's another book that I fell head over heels for. I'm really not sure what it is about paranormal that suddenly I'm reading and loving it so much this year. Now, Ruby Rowe is the not-so-secret pen name of author and podcaster Sasha Black, and she's going to not only tell us about this new romance, but also what inspired her to move from writing YA fantasy and books on the craft of writing to making her debut in queer romance. On behalf of Jeff and myself, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you'll join us again soon for more discussions about the kinds of stories we all love, the big gay fiction kind. Until then, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Original theme music by Daryl Banner. Thank you.